back. Another episode of Talking Maiden. The podcast of the beast. Of the beast. The beast. Has the number been? of the beast. The number of the... The podcast of the number of the beast. This is episode one of the podcast of the number of the beast. Of the beast. Of the beast. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> of the beast. How you doing? Good. Right on. Pumped yeah. about this one. Yeah, this should be a good one. We this should be able to... We should classic. Be able to... We should be able to knock this out in eight parts minimum. Eight, yeah. Eight at least. We'll get through Book of Souls in four. In four, there's a lot to talk about. And that's a double album, so. Yeah. This one. But there's a lot to talk about with this one, too. There's a ton to talk about this one. I feel like I say that with every episode. (laughs) Every episode. I mean, these guys with this Iron Maiden podcast sure like to talk about Iron Maiden. They do. I mean, what, what, can you imagine, uh, how much to say about this one? What what do you think of it? I like it. That's all right. All right. Let's just drink our beer and end this. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. Yep. Number of the Beast is one of my faves. Yep. I think it's one of everybody's faves. Although maybe not to everybody. That was the interesting thing in reflecting on this. Is the first Bruce album puts in perspective, makes you realize that not everybody was as excited um, you know, on having him join at the time. So we'll yeah. get into that. Yeah. We'll get into all that. that. It's hard to think about that now. Yeah, it's such a classic album. Yeah. Like I think this is the one album that if people know one Iron Maiden album, it's probably this one. You think so? If they know the name of one. I'd always say Power Slave, <laughs> but yeah, I guess this is the one. I think if you ask someone who doesn't know anything about Iron Maiden yeah. to name a Maiden album, I'm sure they could say Number of the Beast. That's true. Yeah. But ah. Before we get into the album. Yes. You know, wet our whistles. Wet our whistles <laughs> with a little beer? What is this you yeah. got here? This is a leftover Christmas beer. This is Reserve de Noël. Yeah. It's from Les Trois Mousquetaires in Quebec. It's a beauty. So yeah. leftovers, you sure do spoil me. Spiced red lager. So nice. I'm not sure if I'm gonna like this one. Spiced. What's and it's got a like? nice little uh, cap on it. He's got this little like uh, I don't know champagne corky thing going yeah. on. Yeah. Do not spend your time worrying about those wasted beers. Let's work it. Oh, oh nice, nice sound effects digitally added after the fact. <laughs> There's a nice smell coming off this. I don't know if I have time to pour you one. This looks too good. What kind of beer is this? This is a spiced red lager. 10.5% alcohol per volume. Oh my god. This is going to be a good podcast. That's not bad. I didn't like the smell of it at first. It smelled too much like cloves or something. Oh my god. That is is perfumey though. Yeah, but it doesn't taste like that. That's pretty good. Oh my god. How is this left over? In the fridge. <laughs> the old family Christmas. <laughs> Slinging 10% beers at each other. Wow. Mm. Yeah, it's got a, a bit of chocolatey sweet taste to it or something. It says, brewed once a year with a special blend of spices that will evoke souvenirs from the holiday season. Oh, nice. Right. There you go. Thank you, Quebec. Yep. It's pretty good. I think we had one of their beers before. I, I can't remember. I think we've had a, a couple of their beers. I'll have to put this one on the beer page. TalkingMaiden.com slash beers has a list of every beer that we've tried on the podcast. So I'll add this one. That's right. If you run a brewery and you want us to drink all of your beer, just mail them. Yeah, send us tons of free beer. Probably won't do them on the podcast, but we'll we'll appreciate it. So, Number of the Beast. Mm. We'll get right into it. Third Maiden album. Third Maiden album, 1982. First with Bruce Dickinson. I think their most well-known album. I really? think you wouldn't find anyone that would argue that this isn't a classic album. Or isn't a well-known album. Yeah. Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's their most well-known. Mm. You know? Just because of the, you know, the whole imagery and everything of the Beast and Maiden that goes hand in hand. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it's the first Bruce album. It has Runded Hills on it, which is probably the most well-known Maiden song for people that aren't that into Maiden. Definitely. So. And Hallowed Be Thy Name, classic. Yeah, it's probably at some of the most iconic reflections, especially Number of the Beast too, and the theme, and then the yep. reaction, and this is what really got the the kind of the band labeled as Devil Worshippers. Devil yeah. Worshippers. We'll get into all that eventually. Yeah, we'll cover it all. It's an important Maiden album. Yeah, like the first album, they kind of like made themselves known on the English scene and t- like kind of toured the UK and Europe. Second album, Killers. We talked about this in the Killers episode. They kind of expanded into like Europe and did North America f- for the first time. They toured like Japan and they kind of uh, expanded a bit. Mm-hmm. This album is where they kind of start to conquer the world. They like tour, kind of start headlining. They tour all over America. 
they add Australia. So this is kind of where they stepped out of. They like they kind of went from being one of those new wave of British heavy metal bands to being like their own thing, like yeah, a made global, a global their band, own yeah. band. Yeah, yeah, they take it to the next level. They cranked it up a whole notch. Yeah, like the first and two albums are kind of defining their sound. Yeah, and all those songs were kind of written over the same period. Mm. You know what I mean? And they kind of toured those a lot and played those a lot live. Put those two albums out, and this is where they're kind of like this finely tuned machine. Like, at a different level. Yeah. To kind of take that step. Like, everything's on another, another level. The guitar playing and the songwriting. The vocals with Bruce are on another level. Yep. Song structures are on another level. The melodies. Like, those epic sing-along. You know those courses where you just want to belt it out? Yeah. That's all, like, coming into play here. We're on Kill... I know there's some of that on the first two albums, but not, like, when Bruce belts out, like, Run of the Hills. Yeah. The first time you hear that, you know what I mean? How catchy it is, and and it's and it's an, it's a new approach. It's basically a new set list for them because before there'd been such a mangling between Iron Maiden and Killers and overlap, right. and they'd played it from some of the stuff back to '77, '78, yep. and then now all of a sudden all these are new, right? Right? Bruce just comes in, yeah. It's it is yep. another level. It's a whole step yep. up, like you're saying. And the other thing to not overlook is Adrian. Well, Adrian was in the band when they recorded Killers, but he joined right before they recorded Killers. And this is his their first album after Adrian has kind of like settled into the band. So he's really involved in the songwriting on this album where he wasn't on Killers. So you're starting to get that like Adrian influence in the songs. Most of the songs in the first two were written before Adrian even came along. A lot of the stuff on Killers was leftover, leftovers from the first album. Mm. But this is the first album where Adrian like really contributes. So, Yeah, and you can see it in some of it yeah. too. Definitely. Yeah, like 22 Acacia Avenue was written by Adrian. He wrote that when he was in Urchin, yeah. and uh, he brought that with him. Actually, he was he played that in Urchin years before he was in Maiden, and Steve Harris was at an Urchin show and saw him playing it, and then when they were writing for this album, Steve Harris was asked him, he's like, what's that song you were playing about, like, what's that song you were playing back when you were in Urchin, and Adrian was like, oh, this song? And turned out to be, him and Steve Harris kind of rewrote it into 22 Acacia Avenue. So that's from like way before, but that just shows like Adrian coming in, and he has a couple of songwriting credits on this album. Yeah, but that's that's something not to overlook. Everyone's like, it's the first album with Bruce Dickinson, Bruce Dickinson, Bruce Dickinson. But like that Adrian influence, yeah. that's part of why the sound, the songwriting, I think, takes another step. You yes. just have, you know what I mean? Oh, completely. Yeah, and, you know the whole thing's coming together. We talked about the uh, him joining when we did the Adrian episode, yeah. and you went through that, and that was I thought it was pretty interesting. I'm still expecting us to cause a lawsuit here. The, the, the guys in Urchin will come up and say, hey, wait now. <laughs> we were involved in that band. We own part of the song. Now, definitely, um, there's this is still a period, like, they're going to that next level. We'll, we'll go through it all with the artwork and, and, and the themes and then the iconic hits that come out of it and where it takes them to that next level. But they're still not finalized. They're still very much a work in progress. Yep. And especially how the band gels, not just, you know, with, with Bird departing after this. It just... They're, they're, this is such a departure from Killers in people's mind because of the lead singer. Yeah. But even if it was Paul, I don't know if Paul could carry this album. I don't know right. if they'd write it this way, but that's a whole other debate. It's still drastically different. Like yeah, it's a the songwriting. It's, everything is oh. just... It's, an, a, yeah. it's a big step from... It goes Iron Maiden Killers and Killers to Beast, even if you take the Bruce... Well, Bruce had some songwriting yeah. contributions on this, even though he's not credited. But the songs themselves, it's a yeah. huge step. On that note, why was he credited? Was it was he, he was under contract with oh, Samson still? That's exactly so. There's a year period that's right. after he joined when he there's something to do with like the record label with Samson and yeah. you know, he couldn't be credited. Yeah, so it was legal stuff. Yeah, that's right. But he said he had moral contributions to a bunch of songs. So. That's right. Yeah. Oh well. So this is yeah. So we'll back it up before they started this album. Back to how Diano kind of left and Bruce came in. So I have a bunch of quotes here. I hope people don't get sick of me reading quotes. But I certainly don't. There's one not, here from... Not while I'm drinking a 10.5% <laughs> leftover Christmas beer. So Paldiano, here's a quote, and he said, To be frank, at that age, I wasn't handling things as well as the other guys who are older than me. One minute I was a kid off the street, and the next I was expected to handle things like it was sliced bread. Needless to say, I started drinking a lot. I must have done half of Peru up my nose. I screwed up. So Ooh. that's what Paldiano said. And uh, Steve Harris said, I always thought 
as the band gets more successful, maybe he'll be more into it. But if anything, the bigger we got, the worse he got. So he just wasn't handling. Like the band was starting to blow yeah. up, starting to get big. Yeah. Lots of the touring was getting more and more intense. Yep. Um, and Paul Diano was just not handling it. So I don't know if it was like people always say he was doing drinking and doing drugs, and he kind of like that's you know what I mean. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was like he was drinking and doing drugs because he didn't like being in the band or he couldn't handle being in the band or if he couldn't really handle the band because of or if it kind of went back and forth you know one fed the other yeah and that's an interesting dynamic because i wouldn't say the quality of his work was sacrificing we talked about that when we did made in japan i mean he's getting better he's scaling up yeah and Um, on made in japan which is not very like not very much time before this album he sounds great he sounds amazing yeah the live clips from that and you you almost have to think about it um so many bands they become big and it's just they're held together by scotch tape oh yeah because yeah it's just like well some of these guys are getting wrecked to get on stage because you imagine what it's like being 22 and being in front of a giant stadium oh yeah and then not only that like we always under appreciate um the amount of work that goes into as a band scales up like i'll never forget that famous story of like I think we talked about it on the podcast with Nirvana in the back of a van and they were showing up to giant stadiums and they realized, oh God, we got to get more gear and get bigger. And there's that whole scale up that happens. And you're this kid and this is happening and you don't know how to manage it and you got some older manager and you're wondering if they're taking, they got your interest. There's so many moving parts. Meanwhile, you're trying to self-medicate to get on stage. So, Well, that's kind of what happened with Maiden during the tour for this album is I kind of went from station wagons to a tour bus. Yeah. And it kind of like ramped up. Yeah, but I wonder if if because Harris is so lethal on, on you know maintaining the brand yeah. and not tolerating anything. Yeah. Well, I have a quote here from Steve Harris. He says, "I'm not into drugs myself. Never have been. I'm not against other people doing what they like as long as it don't fuck up their gig." Well, Paul was letting it fuck up his gig. Yeah. So so I just got the explicit rating for our podcast. You got the E. Earned the E. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but my immediate takeaway on that is if, if someone didn't have his attitude, would Paul have had time to sort himself out? You know, like, the, yeah, you can ch- you chuck Paul and you get Bruce, perfect. Yeah. But, like, you know, you chuck Cobain, you, you know, you're down, you're going down. Like, yeah. it, maybe, it, maybe it was strategic, maybe he did it because, it, you know, it made sense where, yeah. where Paul was at. But it, it was a risk, a huge risk. And you wonder if, if Paul might not have found himself right. But that said... Paul's always been that kind of character. Yeah, so. and uh, here's interesting. A, a quote from Paul Diano, yeah. another quote. He said, We used to get all this amphetamine sulfate in these different forms. There was one we'd call cat's piss because you do a line of it and your eyes was watering and your nose is burning. But if you do a gram, you'll be off your face for the good part of two days. We used to also do these pills called speckled blues. Take three of them and you could walk from London to Scotland and you wouldn't even care. I used to stay amped up on it. Unfortunately, that became quite a bad thing for me in the end. So that's yeah. He's just talking about how crazy he is. One funny thing though, I was reading through one of the Martin Popoff books, not the newest one, but like yeah. one of his older ones. There's an interview in there with Dennis Stratton. He says they were looking for a replacement for Paul Diano before the first album was recorded. Wow! So even back before the first album, they were kind of had it in their mind to replace him. So I think they kind of saw his limitations mm. way ahead of time. Yeah. Well, I guess it would be like an abusive relationship. I mean, you know, you'd see the guy get plastered, and you'd be like. I mean, bands are, these are kids. They're hardly going to be totally tight-lipped. They're going to be like, fuck, you know, this is nonsense. Let's go ahead and get someone new. Yeah. And then he shows up and he hammers out this amazing, you know, like the German recording. And you're, you're going to be looking at each other going, holy God. I mean, they didn't know where they were going. They, they yeah. would have looked at Paul back then and said, this guy's actually awesome. Yeah. And even the band. Although, you know what? I think Steve Harris, in his mind, always had this vision of, like, we're going to be the biggest band ever. Huge. And this isn't the guy that's going to take us there. He's yeah. the guy for now. And I think even back then, he had in the back of his mind, like, you yeah. know, I think the Dennis Stratton thing, the Paul Diano thing. That's right. It's all, you know. And when later on, after this album, we'll touch on it at the end of the this album, but the yeah. Clive Burr thing even was kind of had to do with, like, his playing and the way he handled yeah. the... You know, when you say it like that, Steve kind of reminds me, I remember a friend of mine in university, he's gone with this girl, really smart, stunner, just awesome. And, uh, like, he was so happy to be with her. But she had like bigger plans. Oh yeah, <laughs> and they were together for like three years. Boom, out of there. Like yeah. three months later, with this other dude, it was at another level. 
and he was just lying and devastated. He but was the Paldiano of that relationship. You know, like I knew her and she was sweetheart and all this stuff, but she just had this vision and I just knew like, I was like, yeah, you know, your antics and all that stuff are not going to work with her in a couple of years. Anyway, I'm sure she's got the nice white picket fence now. <laughs> so Paldiano, his last gig was at Oddfellows Mansion in Copenhagen, Denmark, September 10th, 1981. So I have a clip from Paldiano's last show, from a bootleg of his last show. So wait, no, this is the Killers Tour. September halfway, 10th, 1981. Almost towards the end. Yeah. A few shows oh, okay. Yeah. So this is the last time Paldiano ever sang with Iron Maiden. Uh, the sound quality... This is going to be a really short clip because the po- sound quality on this is like really not very good. It's uh, pretty harsh, but I'll play it anyway because it's his last time on stage with Maiden. So that was his last show with Maiden. Uh, they got back and, you know, he has a meeting with Rod and he's out. He like quit slash was fired. Yeah. Slash whatever. And he was paid a lump sum. So he doesn't get any royalties now from Maiden songs. So yeah, they paid him out, paid him out and, uh, for his contributions. Yeah. I, I, I don't understand, um, why you'd sign yourself out of future royalties. I, I know that they're going to pressure your herd to do it. Yeah, I'm not sure if you're obligated to. I guess it just shows that Paul didn't have the same vision that Steve Harris did. He's probably like, yeah, let me out of this band and give me some money. (laughs) Yeah, here's some of these blue pills. (laughs) What did he call them? Speckled blues. Speckled blues. A couple couple old speckled hens. I could buy a lot of speckled blues for for that. Anyway, Paul Diano leaves, starts a band called Lone Wolf. Um, but then there was another band called Lone Wolf, so they had to change the name of that band to Diano. So he had a band called Diano. Uh, here's a clip from his band after he left Maiden. Diano solo project he had after like if this is the kind of stuff that he wanted to be singing yeah like when he leaves if this is the kind of stuff that comes out it makes it you know it makes no wonder that he left Maiden because he always says he doesn't like the kind of prog rock direction that Maiden was going in yeah and if this is kind of what he wanted to be doing I can see why he left Maiden or why he was not happy in Maiden singing like Phantom of the Opera and that kind of stuff yeah you know what I mean like this is yeah I don't get it I I, I don't know I mean it's just so disconnected with how I visualize him, you know. Yeah, I know. It's very uh, the leather jacket, sound. yeah, you know, kind of stabby amphetamine <laughs> switchblade, you know, switchblade <laughs> yeah. kind of guy, you know. Like I always picture him like with switchblade. Yeah. I, I I always <laughs> like boot. I always have this like clockwork orange perception of him. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like this kind of like whirlish dervish. Yeah. Way well, he always kind of gave Maiden this like dangerous edge because yeah. you see them up there with Bruce, and they just look they look super badass and cool. But like with Paul Diano at up at the microphone. He always kind of looked brooding, and he always kind of gave them this like, yeah, like dangerous edge. Like yeah. I, you wouldn't be surprised if you, during like the first album, if you went to like the Carton Horses, and you're like, did, were you at the Carton Horses last night? Pagliano, some guy came on stage, and Pagliano took a switchblade over his boot and stabbed yeah. him in the leg. Yeah. He, he cut like, off his ear and wore it all night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? He kind of has a dangerous yeah. edge because I don't know. And I read his book, The Beast, and I don't know how much of his book is true or if it's exaggerated or whatever. But the stories in there, like. He seems like he's a bit of a yeah hard case. It always badass. it always saddens me, you know. Like if you do a, a book like you do, like the Beast, there's yeah. like a local uh, a local sports star who who was drafted by a good team. I don't want to put him down, so I won't won't name him because I think he's a great guy. Um, and he did like his book was you know an eighth overall, uh, uh, you know, a first round nothing was what it was called, and it was like. They view, but when you read it, same as this beast concept, you're viewing your life th- through the lens of your biggest failure. And fair promise. enough that that it didn't work out for you. Fair enough that you know Maiden went on to great things. And I think 
Blaze, that's where that's the interesting thing. Like he doesn't have that. Well, came later in his career, kind of left it. He's like looked at as this important part in his career, but I mean, I don't. Yeah, think... but it took him a long time to come around yeah. to that, thinking that way. You know what I mean? Yeah, he had some rough times after he left Maiden, but yeah, he did. Yeah, he's back better than ever. Yeah, I guess you know to 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 do an, a biography and reflect on like two years and you're pilled out with a band that became famous is a sad reflection. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I suppose. I don't know. Anyway, anyway after Diano, Paul, the after the band Diano. Yeah. He was in this band Gog Magog, which we talked about in the Yannick episode. That's so that's right. with a pre-Maiden Yannick and a post-Maiden Clive Burr. part of that is 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 the drumming because you get clive burr yeah. arguably amazing yeah and it's that's as but as boring as you can make them now who would you have to add to that track before you counted as maiden <laughs> you know like oh so yeah steve harris you'd have can't have maiden without steve harris if steve that's, harris was playing guest bass on that i borderline call that a maiden song we gotta have to maybe debate sometime i guess I he's know. the only actually you know what no i don't think i would i don't think what? i would have what steve harris in with Yannick and Clive. I don't think that counts as Maiden. No, it, it only counts Maiden. Well, Steve Harris would only do it if it was Maiden branded. Unless yeah. I would call it Maiden if this was Kiss because there's a lot of Kiss recordings where there's like two members of Kiss yeah. and like some session guys and a guest songwriter and they still call it Kiss. But with Maiden, Maiden is Maiden. You know what I mean? That's, that's I think should... the song has to be written. Yeah, we should get yeah. into an episode where we do this. Like, what is Maiden? Well, not only what is Maiden, but talk about the Kiss because I we talked about it on the podcast heard about it a few times since kiss is franchising basically right they're gonna allow you to produce stuff as well not anyone i mean it's not yeah. a franchise model like that they're gonna carry on kiss when they're done yeah so kiss is a concept. That's not franchising i know it's not franchise they already they have a new drummer and they have yeah. the new guitar player yeah and they're just saying paul stanley and yeah. they're gonna replace those two and they keep it going apparently. yeah but i mean it's it, almost gonna be like a it's gonna be a, a new a show and act like a yeah, so they've... they've kind they've, of like how how you go see Cats, and yeah, it's like, not the original exactly. London yeah. cast, it's the new cast, or the, yeah. this cast, yeah. Yeah, that, so. it's it's like a Broadway show. Now, if they did... Well, Kiss kind of is like a Broadway show. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, I mean, if they did franchise it, and they're like, here's the North American Kiss, and here's the European no, Kiss, no, no. then that would just be no. uh, ridiculous. Yeah. It's already kind of ridiculous. But. It, it is, <laughs> it is. You know, the only thing, the only saving grace with Kiss is that ridiculousness is part of it. Exactly. A, a big chunk of it. Anyway. Yeah. So back he goes to on. Uh, Paul Diano. So that's Gog Magog. Yeah, but they didn't do a ton together. Did no, they, they, they did that EP. Yeah. And that was it. And they yeah. fizzled. And uh, he also sang for Pring Mantis very briefly with Dennis Stratton. And he did a few albums with Dennis Stratton as the original Iron Man. That's what they yeah, called themselves. I remember that. Um, then he had Battlezone, Killers, Nomad. And uh, he got really heavy, like really heavy for a while with these bands. So this is a clip of Battlezone, and listen to how much heavier he was by then. Battlezone. Then he moved to Brazil and had a band named Rockfellas. He briefly had a band called the Almighty Inbreds, and his latest band was called Architects of Chaos, which I think I played a clip of them a long time ago. And they disbanded recently, and there's yeah. like a bunch of stuff with the guys in the band. There's a bunch of drama. I don't know. Can't remember what happened. Yeah. So there's so many different bands yeah. here. But he never. He was very yeah. prolific. He never really stopped working. He's always been. Yeah, putting new bands together. He's been scraping a pile this time. What's like? What's his most successful or his best work? I mean, because I don't know it. Um, some of the Diano stuff I don't mind. Yeah. Uh, some of the Battlezone stuff, it's a little heavy for me. Yeah. Like some of his solo stuff, the heavier stuff, he puts together a really tight backing band. 
So some of it's good, but it's just not my thing. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's too heavy for you, which is so crazy yeah. ironic considering where he wanted to go originally. Yeah, yeah it's kind of gone full. But there's the odd song here and there. I haven't really listened to a lot of it that much. I have a, some of it I have on vinyl at home, and I've listened to it like once through. And I don't know. Yeah, I just it's something I didn't really get into. If we do a Paul Diano episode, I'll bring all those albums in, and we'll yeah. listen to them all through, and we'll dig into it because we are planning on doing a Diano episode. We'll get into all his side product. Pro- we'll get into all of his side projects. Yeah, because there's a lot of them. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'll, well, I was gonna say I look forward to that, but I don't. Not like I. Not like the the Yannick, the Adrian, yeah. all the Blaze stuff. Like yeah. because I don't know. I haven't seen it, anything that I liked or I feel. Yeah, like. it'll be a good break from the episodes where it's just me and you talking about how awesome everything is. <laughs> that's true. I'll get back and yeah. get, get the knocks of stuff. <laughs> yeah. True. Like this album that we're about to talk about. I when we get into the tracks on this, there's a lot of uh, well positive I got, stuff. I, got, I do have some criticisms, even though it's a classic album. I got lots. I don't have lots. I got lots of criticisms. I have a few, and they're not very strong criticisms. Yeah. So the last thing that the last public appearance that Paul Diano did was with the Iron Maidens in 2017. So he appeared at the O2 with the Iron Maidens, and he came on stage and sang a song with them. <laughs> So that was him with the Iron Maidens yeah. uh, at the O2 Arena last year. So By the way. He still has a decent scream. He still, yeah. He's still got some good pipes on him. Not sounding Have too we bad. talked about the Iron Maidens yet? We haven't. Love them. Yeah. I know every clip I've seen of them, they seem great. Oh, yeah. Especially the video clips are the best. <laughs> um, so we should do, we should, we should definitely reach out to them. We should do that. Yeah, that'd be a bit of fun. Yeah, that'd be absolutely. Cool. If they if they came on the podcast, that'd be really awesome. Yeah, they're not they're not well. They're pretty well known in the Maiden Clicks. Oh, they're huge, like, man. They're huge man. They're really yeah. Big. Playing the O two, yeah. They've actually had quite a tenure. Yep. You know, I've seen some old clips and man. And they do a awesome. lot of the songs that Maiden won't do. Like they'll do Alexander the Great live. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, oh man, cool. I'd love to see them live because they have quite a. The the only thing I know about him is I watched uh, a, a little documentary online about him. Little thing I watched a bunch of clips when we were emailing back and forth. This is like years ago, yeah. right? But I saw him recently, like maybe I don't know, a couple of months ago. Yeah. And then I saw the tour schedule somewhere. Now, I've been meaning to mention this on the podcast. We haven't talked about them, have we? Uh, we mentioned them before back yeah. in like I think they're pretty the awesome. First dozen episodes back there. Somewhere. Yeah, they, they've got some serious skills too. Oh my god, yes, they're crazy good. Yeah, they're yeah. awesome. Not as good as those herp. Uh, <laughs> the twins. Know, I think that's that. the episode that I said that Dean I got the most angry email I've ever gotten from you I was like what do you think of this and you wrote back this big blink. this is before the podcast people so like anyone who's gotten an email from just condense all of the emails he writes into one email it was venom it was like uh, not that you ever write but you had a lot of that energy bad. You I was, was just like, oh, I, gotta pull I was like up. you're ruining they're ruining these Iron Maiden songs, basically. You basically wrote me back. I was like, hey, Nesma, what do you think of these guys? This is like years ago. Yeah, you're like, isn't this like, awesome? And I was like, no, it's not awesome. Isn't this awesome? You're like, I don't think that, I'm not harsh. <laughs> That's right? how I felt. Okay. That's how you made me feel when I read I think I was probably like, oh, it was, I don't know. I was kind of like Because I don't mind the harp, the harp. I don't mind that they're doing it. It doesn't do anything for me. I did the same thing when you had acoustic fell on playing the tunes. Remember yeah, that? I know. Yeah. I did the same thing. But with the harp girls, I don't know. <laughs> you have a soft spot there. Maybe it's maybe it's the Irishman in me. Okay, know. back on track. Yeah. We totally went off track, but that's okay. We're back on track. So Paul back Diano. So Paul Diano, he's picks. out of the band. Yeah. He goes through all the stuff. That's what happened to Paul Diano. So then we're into Bruce coming into the band. So yeah. I have one last quote from Paul Diano. He says, I knew Bruce. Fucking hell, they were horrible. Samson. I'm sorry to say, Bruce was pretty good, but the way he used to dress was awful. We used to make fun of him. So Bruce was in Samson. Fighting words. <laughs> I don't think so. If you have, if you ever seen pictures of Bruce in Samson, he's one hundred percent correct. <laughs> he is. He is. He was ridiculous, but also Bruce during this album on the tour looked a little bit interesting. Also, Murray looks like he's about fifteen years old. 
Like I was looking through a bunch of pictures. He's just like oh, during this phase. Yes. Yeah, I know. Oh my god, he looks like a child. Yeah, and he always looks so excited. He's he looks like he's living his dream, and he can't believe how awesome everything is all the time. He'll like be playing his guitar solo, and he'll look up with a big smile. It's like he's trying to not smile all the time. Yeah. But I mean, it's I would be exactly the same if I was in Iron Maiden in 1982. <laughs> <laughs> Murray grinning from ear to ear. I'm so sad right now. <laughs> anyway. So I got this uh, this book called Running Free by Gary Bushel. And he says that Steve Harris first noticed Bruce at the Music Machine in London on May 8th, 1979. So this was a concert. The lineup was Angel, Witch, Iron Maiden, and Samson. And Maiden at the time was Dave Murray, Paul Diano, Steve Harris, Doug Samson. So there are four pieces at the show. Um, And this was organized by Neil Kay. So do you remember us talking about Neil Kay? He's the one who had the bandwagon heavy metal soundhouse. So he had that club. That's where the soundhouse tapes got their name. So... They did the Space Word Studio demos. They gave them Neil Kay. He played him at the club. The demos kind of got into Rod Smallwood's hands. It's kind of what broke Maiden. So Neil Kay, he's pretty important in like the history of Maiden. Um, and that's why they named those demos when they decided to release them in 79. Mm. He, they named it the Soundhouse Tapes, kind of in tribute to him and him playing them there. So this show was organized by Neil Kay. And that's where Steve Harris saw Bruce perform for the first time with Samson. So this is a clip of Samson with Bruce. So this is Bruce singing with Samson. So that's Bruce. You can tell he, like, I'm sure Steve saw Samson playing and was like, that guy has seriously good voice. Yeah. Now, I don't think, obviously, you know, the little clip and the little bit I've seen before and uh, the early years documentary goes into kind of Bruce being around the scene and the, you know, the heavy metal wave in Britain at the time. Um, but I can I can visualize, like, if, if I was there, I'd be like, yeah, that's okay. If you're Harris and you're looking up and you, you just hear his vocal range, you're just thinking about what you want to do. The yeah, the wheels years. start turning in your head. Yeah, yeah. and you, all you're going to look at is not what they're playing or how they sound now. You're going to look at the potential. And Bruce's voice is an instrument that you can use. Yeah. And yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, so Bruce's name was actually Bruce Bruce while he was in Samson. So apparently that was his management's idea to name him Bruce Bruce. It wasn't like Bruce Dickinson's idea. And apparently it's from some Monty Python sketch. You know that one where all the Australian guys and they're all named Bruce? Yeah. yeah. Good night, Bruce. Yeah. How you doing, Bruce? Yeah. I hate Monty Python. But Bruce is... <laughs> you hate Monty Python? Yeah. We talked about this before, remember? And I even got a whole bunch of horrible emails from people. <laughs> Did you really? Well, you deserve them. Yeah. Monty Python's not funny to me. Monty Python is hilarious. Yeah, to you. No. They're, they're hilarious. They're, they're just hilarious. No, they're not. They're hilarious. They're everything. Well, that's your, that's your they're uh, old timey. They're that's funny. Your I don't find them funny. And I get all the jokes. And my number one pet peeve is when I'm like, Monty Python's not funny. And they're like, oh, you just don't get it. And then they try to explain to me the joke that I totally get. I just don't find it funny. How do you not find it funny? Okay. Like if someone was like, why'd the chicken cross the road? And I'm like, to get to the other side. And okay. you don't laugh. And I'm like, you don't get it. Because you expected me to give a real good reason. But I just gave you the most simple reason for the reason that anyone would cross the road. Don't you get it? You just don't get it. No. Yeah, that's I, that's I, I what the equivalent that, of explaining that Monty joke, Python to me. And that's not but, funny. Yeah, that's what the way I feel. But Monty Python is funny. Okay, well, Black Sabbath is awesome. Tell me, tell me it. Yeah, well, we can talk <laughs> there about we go. That. Black Sabbath <laughs> are definitely awesome, and they're definitely good, and people love them. But I just will never listen. I know to you them hate Ozzy because I hate Ozzy. Yeah. But also, I oh, also, what happened when I I also made you a mix of Paul of. Ronnie James Dio era yes, Sabbath, which I never and gave it to you, to. and you're like, I'm gonna listen to it. I hate Ozzy. Yeah. I hate Ozzy so much. I'm not gonna listen to Dio era Sabbath. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But I also love hating things. I know that's also part of me. Like, I mean, sometimes people are like, Oh, this 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 sports <laughs> team. What do you think of them? I'm like, I, I absolutely hate them. And you know, you gotta take look. You gotta take uh, joy from suffering sometimes. Um, no, like, but Monty Python are legitimately. You can't not. Yeah. Like, well, last time that we were talking about. And I get, I love Kids in the Hall, and I love all the stuff that's, like, inspired by Monty Python. Yeah. I just don't find them funny. I've seen all the movies multiple times. I've seen, How did you watch them multiple times? I've probably seen them? a quarter of the Flying Circus episodes. Yeah. 
Um, I just don't find them funny. Because used to, people used to watch them all the time. You go to someone's house, hang out in their basement, and they put these movies on and be like, oh, this movie again. I watch it and they'll be like, ah, ah, and I'll be like, yeah, I get it, but whatever. Didn't like, you find it funny me. the first time as no. you got sick of them? No, I never, it, I, like, I don't know. Really? Yeah, I didn't find it funny. I don't understand how you could not find that. Like, there's just so many brilliant comedians in there. Is there anyone in there you hate? Nope. nope. I have no hatred towards anyone in Monty Python. I just don't find it funny. That's all. Some of it I can see how it's kind of clever, or I get where they're kind of, you know what I mean? But I, I've never, like, laughed. I don't know if I've, maybe I have laughed a few times, but, like, I don't know. I just don't find it funny. Anyway, I, last time I brought this up on the podcast, yeah. and we had this almost identical debate. Did we really? We did. And I got an email, and people were emailing, I got an email. Yeah. Thank you. I didn't get a lot. I probably got, like, three emails. Yeah. Emailing me YouTube links to, like, have you ever seen this sketch? And it's like, yes, I've seen the friggin' parrot sketch. I don't want to... The parrot is hilarious. Anyway, they sold it to him. It was dead. Anyway, so that or my, was it? Okay, so Bruce, Bruce, ministry, they nicknamed Ministry him, of Funny Walks. Uh, yeah, that's, that's stupid. That's hilarious. Stupid. The whole idea is okay. Like, this isn't a, try to convince me that well, Monty Python is funny, and me try to convince you that Ozzy's the king no, of no, metal. look, look. <laughs> but I can admit that subjectively, there's some great music in there. No question. I mean, yeah. I used to listen to it and like it. Ozzy Osbourne and that reality TV show and all that nonsense and Sharon Osbourne are stupid kids yeah. and all that stuff makes me hate them so much yeah. that here's what would happen. Okay. If I liked, if I started to like Sabbath, yeah. then I'd start to, I, I'd either spend money on it like I do with all the mu- musicians I like and money will go into those stupid kids and Sharon Osbourne's bank account and I hate them and I don't don't like anything about them and the rest of the- Actually, you already own all the Sabbath albums because you get your dad. dad's record collection which is at my house right now. It is. That you I can, listen to all the you time. You can keep those ones. Remember, I already gave them to you on the podcast. I already said oh, you yeah, can you have did. them all. They're all yours. Oh, sweet. Have them all. <laughs> Stick them in the garbage. I don't care. Okay. Enough of this Aussie versus... Oh, I uh, We're, we're going to get emails after this episode saying, like... So what? I'm going to get the one saying, Money Python's awesome, and you'll yeah. get the email saying... But at least I can admit awesome. why I don't like something that's good. You're yeah. afraid to admit why you don't like something that's good. No, I just don't agree that it's good. Anyway, let's drop this. This is stupid. Right, then people email him in and prove that it's good. <laughs> Carry on. I know. This is like most... If you look at like the statistics for our downloads, we have yeah. like a third of the people that listen to this podcast are in England and they're all going to be like, how can you not like Monty Python? Anyway, exactly. that's fine. Well, they should. I'm not saying I hate them. I'm just saying I don't find them funny. Yeah, I'm sure well, they're all nice guys. I watched a documentary on Netflix about them and it was really interesting and the guys seemed like really nice guys. Do you know what you just did? For... And? Yeah. Uh, I... Won't even get into the Can I Play With Madness video. Yeah. So, there. Do you, realize, do you realize what you did with this segment, though? For zero, hijacked it. For zero dollars? <laughs> for zero dollars? You bought an argument. Okay. That's a Monty Python skit. Oh, okay. Yeah. Go on. Funny. What's the next? Where were we? Paul leaves. He's Paul gets na- Okay. So, yeah. Samson. Bruce is in Samson. We just played a clip of Samson. His name is Bruce Bruce. This is how we got into this. Bruce, his name, Bruce. Yeah, I know. Not his actual name. His stage name. His stage name. Yeah. Oh, they, uh, in one of the books I was reading, they said they used to sign his checks as Bruce Bruce. So anyway. But Rod yeah. Smallwood hated the name Bruce Bruce. So he went by Bruce Dick. His name's actually Paul Bruce Dickinson. But mm-hmm. I don't think they want it to be like, out with the old Paul and with the new Paul. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Oh. So, Bruce Dickinson. So while Bruce is in Samson, they record two albums, Head On and Shock Tactics. So, it's weird when you're talking about Samson too, because there's like so much overlap between Samson and Maiden. Uh, Clive Burr was in Samson for three years before he was in Maiden. Uh, Clive Burr got replaced in Samson by Barry Perkis. Thunderstick. Really? I had no idea. He was the drummer for Maiden from like 77, 78. Yeah. It went like Ron Matthews, Barry Perkis, Doug Samson, Clive Burr, Nico. So after he left Maiden, he joined Samson. Yeah. No, so, I knew... I and knew, then Bruce Dickinson, yeah, left. So. I knew they were... It was like a very small clique and they were playing the same clubs and they were back to back and they were, they were even cheering back and forth who was headliner and all that stuff. Yeah. I remember that. I had no idea Clyde was in Samson. Yeah. So Maiden shares two drummers and a singer with Samson. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a black enough on There's Maiden. a lot of overlap. There's a band called Trust, yeah. a French band. Clive Burr and Nico both drummed for Trust. That band Praying Mantis. Paul Diano, Den Stratton, Clive Burr, Bob Sawyer, Raleigh at various points in Praying Mantis. And then we mentioned Gog Magog, Paul Diano, Yannick, and Clive. So there's a whole bunch of these bands that have like overlap in the scene or whatever. But uh, anyway, Samson's last gig with Dickinson, the Reading Festival in 1981. So this is a clip from the last set that Bruce ever did with Samson. So this is the Reading Festival. Um, this is the last time that Bruce is on stage 
singing with Samson. So at Reading Festival, Rod Smallwood approaches Bruce Dickinson, asks him to audition for Maiden. So from Bruce's book, and we covered this a bit in the Maiden Japan yeah, episode, this before. he said, back in the room, away from prying eyes, Rod laid out his cards, I'm offering you the chance to audition for Iron Maiden. And he said, are you interested? So in Maiden Japan, actually, I said something that wasn't right. So I said that Maiden was playing at the Reading Festival in 81 when all this happened. Maiden played 80 and 82. But this was at 81, so Steve Harris and Rod Smallwood were at the Reading Festival backstage in 81 just to see Bruce Dickinson and talk to him. So Maiden wasn't playing there. Maiden wasn't actually playing there? No. Oh my god, huge apology to the listeners. I mean, yeah. how do we make this one up? I mean, that's, that's just the kind of stuff that happens, guys. I'm so sorry but about that. But that's the kind of stuff that I'll get an email about. Saying, yeah. Actually, yeah. Fair enough. So Bruce says yes, he auditioned for the band, and in... Mick, okay, so I was trying to figure out when the audition for Bruce Dickinson happened. In Mick Wall's book, the official biography of Iron Maiden, he says the next day Bruce auditions, August 30th, 1981, which doesn't sound right to me, but according to that book, he says it's the next day. And I don't know if he actually meant the very next day or if he meant like over the next day or two, but that's way before Paul Diano leaves the band. So they're auditioning Bruce before Paul's out of the band. Yeah, wait, no. So what? when was that, August? That would be August 30th, 1981. Yeah, so, but Bruce's first show was in that fall. The Reading Festival, they approached him August 29th. And a day or two, a few days after that, I guess, Bruce auditions. And then September 10th is the last Diano gig. And September 26th is when they announced Dickinson joining. So they auditioned him before Paul quit. So Okay, okay. So... So, reflecting back on that, so late August, Reading Fest, they know the ground, they used to play there, they're not the this year, they show up to meet the yep. Bruce. Yep. They have a chat with them, we'll get back into that in a second, yep. but Bruce Bruce figures he's got the gig, I, I yep. remember from the Made in Japan, um, that's late August, and then he comes in in, in October, Bruce comes in as there. Right. So we kind of got this three month transition, so back to the, the Reading Fest there. Right, so yeah. he, he comes in, it says in that Mick Well book, the next day. Yeah. I don't know if it's actually the next day, August 30th, or if it's, but probably early September, um, which is way before Paul Diano is kicked out of the band. So a week later, they go into the studio with Maiden, and they record some demos with Bruce. Uh, in Gary Bushel's book, Running Free, they say, he wa- they wa- we wanted him to learn six songs, he learned 15. And Bruce Dickinson, in his book, he says, a week or so later, they came and got me in the studio, we did four songs, so we could have a listen to what I sound like in the studio. That took a couple of hours, and they said, right, that's it. Let's go get drunk. It's happened. And the next album was Number of the Beast. So basically, Bruce, like, way overprepared and learned, like, you know, most yeah. Maiden songs. <laughs> and he came in and just, like, blew them away. So I have a bunch of clips from his audition tape, which I played some of this earlier on an earlier episode. But this is Bruce Dickinson's audition tape for Iron Maiden. <laughs> That's a huge step up from Paul Diano. Yeah. And uh, this is another clip from his demo when he went in the studio and recorded those songs. Um, when he belts out the scream at the end of the Wrath Child, I think this probably like sealed the deal as far as being in the band. Oh, my God. 
Samson loses, they're awesome singer. That was basically Actually, the more. end of the May. No, they had two more albums, uh, yeah. Before the Storm and Don't Get Even, Get Mad. Yeah. And then I think later on, like maybe in the 90s or something, I'm not sure, they had a reunion where they had some more stuff out. But yeah. Dickinson officially joins Maiden September 26, 1981. So I have a quote from Steve Harris. He says, when he joined the band, it was a huge relief for us. He gave us a brand new conviction and we we're back in business again. Because even if we weren't worried about the music, there was a general feeling of discouragement that worried me. So yeah. he gets a new singer. A month later, Bruce Dickinson performs his first concert in Italy with Iron Maiden. So the first song he ever sings in concert with Iron Maiden is Sanctuary. Um, so this is a clip from Bruce Dickinson, the first time he ever sang, the first song he ever sang on stage from his first show ever with Iron Maiden. nothing uh, dates the early Iron Maiden more than when Bruce sings it because you just realize how different it is. Yeah, it's a really different style for yeah. him. Like, yeah. Whenever I, like, I mean, he does an excellent rendition there. It's, it's well, solid. And yeah. I, I love that. It doesn't suit his voice and his it, style of singing. You know, it's not written for him yeah. like this album is. Yeah. But he's basically picking up and finishing off the Killers set list. Yeah. Killers tour set list. Yeah, but it also, Polyano, it also makes you realize how far they've come, but anyway. Yeah. So they do four shows in Italy. And then they come back and they do their first UK show at the Rainbow. So this is the same club that they filmed Live at the Rainbow at a year before mm. with Paul Diano. Almost a year before. Um, that's on the early History of Iron Maiden Part 1, the early days. They have that whole concert. So on the Maiden Japan episode, we played a whole bunch. Remember I had that bootleg of, those show, of the first show that they played, the UK show. And then uh, at the Ruskin Arms December 23rd, 1981, they do, like, Hallowed Be Thy Name, The Prisoner, and Run to the Hills for the first time. Yeah. November 15th, they do 22 Acacia Avenue and Children of the Damned for the first time. Um, I've got clips of those here. I don't know if I'm going to play them again. I played the I played a lot of that on the Made in Japan. I don't know if I'm going to replay those clips. Yeah. But if you want to hear those clips, they're on the Made in Japan episode. And the episode afterwards, too, I think I have uh, some yeah. of the clips from those songs. So Steve Harris says there was a lot of pressure. Not only did we have a new singer, we had no material. When we got the third album, we had nothing. We had to write from scratch. And he said, the weird thing is all the material was written in two or three week period because that's all the time we had. So I don't believe this at all. I totally think, I know there's some truth to it, but everyone always says like when they start this new album, they start from scratch. They don't have any songs. They have to start all, record yeah. all these songs, yeah. which they might have. But these bootlegs from uh the rainbow and from ruskin arms like they go back as far as november 15th there's a whole bunch of these beast songs fully formed completely exactly like they sound on the album so two months before they record beast They have all these songs really polished when they play them for the first time live. I get a feeling Steve Harris kind of had these songs. He was writing songs for the new singer before he had them. I think he kind of knew. He had Bruce in his sights. He knew Paul was on the way out. And yeah. he just kind of had all these songs. You know, and he got the new singer. And I think they fleshed them out really quickly for the new album. But I don't think it was like they got in and they wrote all these from scratch. Yeah, and especially, I mean, you know, like some of the defining ones. I mean, yeah. you know... When he came in with the theme, where it was he in his head with Number of the Beast, 22 Acacia Avenue, we know that, that was, there was right. a lot of that was brought in. Hell yep. Be Thy Name is kind of a piece, you know, it's a lot to that track. Yep. I, can't, I can't see that just appearing out of nowhere. Yeah, so Children so of the I'm Damned, Hallowed yeah. Be Thy Name, Run to the Hills, The Prisoner, 22 Acacia Avenue. Yeah. They had all those written, like, you know. Well, they did. Absolutely. Way As a matter before. of fact, you've just yeah. named the heart of the album. 
Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. So. And they're very polished. It's not mm-hmm. like they played early versions live and then fleshed them out. That my, that that was one of my when I just you know did a little bit of uh, yeah. reading in the last little while and and from anything I've read about the early years, that's one thing that I always find is a little bit I don't know disingenuous or or, or not straightforward. Yeah, they talked about how quick this came together. Yeah, but there's so many distinct super polished tracks. It makes no sense to me. I mean, yeah. you can pretend that that you know the, the the sun is shining on the recording studio for two weeks, but I mean. Hallow Be Thy Name, that's a track that you work out for days and days yeah, if you don't think, have that cleared yeah. out in your mind. I mean, that's a recording session right there. So, like, how did didn't you, you know, like, no, so I agree with you. It was, what he's saying, the album came together in a few weeks, is basically, like, it coalesced these ideas that they had already worked out significantly. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, their first show with Dickinson, October 26, 1981. Yeah. Two weeks later, maybe th- three weeks later. They play that gig at the Rainbow with five Beast songs fully written and finished, right? So le- less than two weeks after they get back from their Italian tour, they have these five songs finished. I suppose it's possible they wrote them, but yeah. I don't know. I think he was stockpiling these ideas and being like, I'm not letting these at Will Paul's in the band. When Bruce gets in, you're just going to go for it. Right, yeah. So, yeah. And another thing is, oh, this is a little side note. So do you remember Terry Slesser from the band Beckett? Yeah. He's involved in the lawsuit. Yep. The um, stuff. At the time, he was in a band called Backstreet Crawler, and he was kind of considered briefly to replace Paul Diano, but Harris didn't think he'd be able to sing all the songs. So his band was actually called Crawler at the point, and he auditioned, and he, I don't know, apparently he didn't click with like their kind of prog rock thing. Um, I have a clip of him. This is Terry Slesser when he was in Backstreet Crawler. So he had auditioned for Maiden while Paul was still in the band. So the reason I brought that up is because they auditioned him behind Paul's back, which makes me even think even more that like, you know, they were ready to go with these songs for Bruce. You know what I mean? They were pre-written. They knew Bruce was coming in the band long before Paul was out. Yeah, I think I think so, yeah. I think that's that's a given. I mean, yeah. and there's also have you, there's a guy named Malcolm Dome. He's an English music journalist. Yeah. I read an article he wrote, and he said he knew about the replacements weeks before it was announced. So there's only 16 days between Paul quitting and Bruce joining, but he says he knew weeks before that Bruce was the replacement. Yeah, well, there was a in the new um, Martin Popoff book there was yeah. a, there was a quote in there that Diano, when he was uh, on tour, said to a reporter that he was going to quit. So there was already like yeah. there was animosity or there was yeah. tension that summer. So it was it was it was coming up, but what really strikes me is that. There was nothing new from the Paul era that got carried in here. It's like, oh, no, this is a blank slate, this new album. Yet, if you look at even uh, signs that got thrown into the Killers, which in some ways I think we argued that was viewed at the time as like a B, almost like a lot of lot of uh, tracks that had overlapped. From 77 to up until this time, to almost 82, like there was this set list that got coalesced in Iron Maiden and then Killers and a few other things. Yeah. Nothing major. All of that period from the killer set list itself, or all the killers album, that was more or less defined well in advance of that album. And then, you know, we covered that in the killers thing. There's this gap where they would have written nothing for like 15 months or more. Like yeah. That, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. According to the way these, these guys work. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I think he knew Bruce was coming in the band, kind of re- removed any kind of restrictions he had on his songwriting. Yeah. Because pretty much anything that he could write, he knew Bruce could sing. So, like, Iron Maiden and Killers, you have awesome early metal, but written for Paul Diano's voice. And Number of the Beast is, like, Steve Harris takes a leap in songwriting. It goes up another level. He knew he was going to get Bruce. This is all my opinion, of course. And just yeah. wrote all these awesome songs with Bruce in mind, you know. And I think he probably held on to them until Bruce was in the band, and then that was it. So he really expanded into, like, progressive metal direction. Made a clean break with that whole punk kind of 
you know, attitude style stuff. And uh, new era of Maiden. I got a quote from Martin Birch. It says, Bruce was capable of handling lead vocals on some of the quite complication, complicated directions I knew Steve wanted to explore. So when Bruce joined, it opened up the possibilities for a new album tremendously. And for that reason, Number of the Beast was a turning point for Iron Maiden. Oh, yeah. So, Bruce gets in the band. There's a bit of a backlash from fans. Um, they thought kind of they're trying to appeal to an American audience, so they got a new singer to kind of compete with the American metal at the time. Which yeah. is, there's some truth to that, but... Um, at the first show, that Ruskin Arms bootleg, if you listen to that bootleg, I'll let you listen to it sometimes. It, sometimes you can hear people yelling, we want Paul, we want Paul in the audience. It's wow. funny. So people are just like, who's this new guy? But I'm pretty sure once they heard Bruce, by the end of the concert, I'm sure they were convinced. Yeah, that's a funny one, because the Ruskin Arms, you think that everyone in there would be well, well, uh, you know, um, in touch with, like, Bruce and Samson and all that. I mean, that's, that's a whole space there. I mean, most people would have... You would you would imagine they would have seen it come together if you're if you're deep enough into the scene that you're there yelling out for Paul. Yeah, you know you can you're still gonna always have people to pick sides. Yeah, well, it was only a couple of guys, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> vocal, very vocal guy. Yeah. So so yeah, I guess people get used to having the new lead singer yeah. pretty quick once they heard what he could do. Yeah. So uh, yeah, they get together, they write, they record. Beast comes out. First track. Let's get into inv- let's get into the tracks. Absolutely. We'll talk about some of the theme recording stuff. We'll talk about Yeah, and we'll get into the cover at the next time. I kind of want to get into the tracks because we're like an hour in now. Invaders. Yep. Okay, I always take this. I always step back. Yep. And I look at it and I say, okay, we talked very briefly about the fan backlash. We have to talk about that again. We'll get into that next, next, look at that in a little more time because that is an interesting one. It's hard for us to envision as current Maiden fans that there would be a backlash against Bruce because hindsight 2020. But at the time, it totally makes sense. Now, well, people hate when you replace, you know, the lead singer in your favorite band, no matter do. who it is. You're yeah. gonna hate it anyway. People yeah. just don't like it. I mean, even when you trade a sports uh, player for someone who is objectively bigger, if you love the player that's going, you still don't like the trade. Yeah, like right. you get emotionally attached to bands. That's why we like it. That's yeah. why I won't listen to bands like we talked about because I don't like the singers. Yeah. Liking them, being connected to them, is part of enjoying the music. Part of enjoying the music. If you want to fall in love with Bruce Dickinson as new lead singer. And I'm thinking back to now, you know, early 80s, you're listening on vinyl. Why are you opening with this track, Invaders? See, I think that, um, I don't think this is a a, a bad choice for an opener. Yeah. It's not that's, that's not the strongest song. I think the core, it's a, one of the weakest. I don't know. I think the chorus is really weak. Yeah. But the rest of the song I think is great. But it's, the rest of the song is really great. And I'll tell you why this is a great song to open with. Um, so, hold on, I have some clips I was going to play after. I'll play, so you have this, okay, so it opens with this. So, you know, it's this, like, machine gun kind of intro with Clive Burr. It's kind of thrashy sounding, which is a cool way, I think, to bridge between Killers and this kind of melodic stuff. Yeah. So I think this track yep. could be on Killers. So imagine, okay, here's a clip I have put together. Imagine listening to Killers and hearing this. I think that's why it's a good choice for an opener of these songs because it's kind of a bridge between Killers. Like that didn't sound out of place at all. It didn't. And that sounds like it could be on Killers. So that to me, like that sounds like the old Paldiano era Maiden intro. And even the way uh, Bruce is singing it, he's kind of like showing off what his voice can do. And he's, but he's still kind of singing in that like aggressive Paldiano like style. Yeah. So it's a kind of a, a they're kind of introducing into the new singer without straying out of that like thrashy killer punk sound. Yeah. Oh, okay. So there's there's that that's an interesting take, and I could definitely that's my agree take on with it. that. Yeah. And and I think that's fair. I still yep. don't think it's a strong first track, and I still I agree with you that the chorus is yep. a bit campy. Funny though, I you know I believe when we we when we covered X Factor. Yep. 
we had the exact opposite take, which was they immediately tried to establish Blaze is different. I remember right. we talked about that in yep. the album, but that that's a digression. They're here in the third album, and you're saying that that the reason that they're opening with Invaders is at least, or at least in the beginning, there's a right. you you could fit that into. And not only that, this right. does tie back yeah. to this is remember when we did the B sides episode. Yeah. This is one of the songs on the Soundhouse tapes. Yes. So Invasion. This this song came from Invasion. It's kind of a rewriting of Invasion. So I'll just play you a clip. This is the in- song Invasion from the Soundhouse tapes. So, you don't really hear that much similarity between that and this song. But I think it's basically the main kind of riff they kind of rewrote. So, I have a clip here where I put the riff from Invasion with the riff from Invaders. And they're very similar when you kind of put them back to back. But, like, note how much more prominent Steve Harris's bass playing is here. He's playing more like a guitar player playing a riff. Whereas Invasion, he's kind of just playing a bass line. But listen to these two riffs back to back. So, you know, it sounds kind of similar. I don't think it's, you know, like, a re- it's like, a, I think this was inspired by Invasion. Yeah. And they really rewrote it over and over and turned it into this. But, I mean, I think it has a great bass line. I think it's a really great song. I think it's a 10 out of 10 song with a 6 out of 10 chorus or a 5 out of yeah, 10 I'd chorus. probably give you that. Yeah. Like the Clive Burr's drumming in it is great. Like, uh, if you listen to the solo, like... My favorite, one of my favorite parts of the song is listen to the drumming that's underneath the solo by Clive Burr in this. So I think it's just, it's a really good song. I just think the chorus is a bit of a letdown. It's just like, you know, it's five ascending notes and then five descending notes. Yeah. I got a clip here. Here's the chorus, just what we're talking about. If you came up with a better, if you came up with a better chorus, if this had a really, really great chorus, people would be talking about this as an awesome opener. Yeah. Even, even, even the, uh, look, it, it was, it's only, I only had this perspective on Invaders because preparing for this podcast, went back, listened to the vinyl a lot, and I literally put myself in the mindset of first Bruce album. Yeah. I'd never done that with this song before. Yeah. I've never been like, Invaders, got off and been like, oh my God, this is the first time anyone's saw Bruce from a studio perspective yeah. in a maiden uniform. I never thought of it like that. And then when I saw this, I was like, why leave with this track? And you know, now I'm nitpicking a bit. Yeah. You know, and I'm having a bit of fun. Yeah. My, my, you know. See, I think they threw this out as a thrashy. Yeah. Old, and it is an old, if you look at it as having something to do with Invasion, it is from that first group of pre-Beast songs. Yeah. It's rewritten, but it's it, it's basically an old song from that era, redone. Yeah, and so it's a good tie with the old to the it's new a transition. to kind of transition you into Bruce, and then after this is Children of the Damned, yeah. and then you're getting into him just like belting out these notes and like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, so I think it's it's just a good like kind of step in between the old era and the new era, and, I and that's what that. Invaders is, and that's why I think it's it's a good place on the album. I just think the course yeah. is super weak. I I. I agree with you completely on yeah. that, and I respect your analysis on the reason they put it there. 
but the fact that they put it there to transition shows that yeah. there's that importance with the first track, which for me, I would just like blow them out of the water with oh, yeah. the strings. Just throw Run to the Hills at the beginning or something. You know what? And I'll, I'm like, spoiler alert right now because we're not going to get to it this episode. Yeah. I fell back in love with Run to the Hills. Yeah, Run to the Hills is awesome. Two, oh God, it was so overplayed in my mind. I've listened because I've listened so much to this on vinyl. Yeah. Two things stood out. Some of the recording and mixing we're going to talk about next time I'm not impressed with. Yeah. Okay. Secondly, Run to the Hills is awesome. Yeah, Run to the Hills is a great song. Oh my God, it's amazing. Yeah. Like, I, but I, I've hated it so much. I've just been like, yeah. why are you playing that? Oh, and I've got I just to... took my time listening through it, went through it over and over again, read like, you know, focused on the lyrics and kind of put it in the context of like, you know, them starting to grow in America and then in this perspective. I can't wait to get to that track. Yeah. yeah. Well, geez, we're way, we're at like an, way over an hour. Yeah. Let's do right. This is our typical, uh, me and you talk and then we get one track done and then we're done. Yeah, but that's good. <laughs> you know what though? About that's this right. uh, 10% beer here, at least we had a good debate. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Don't email me about Monty Python. <laughs> do email him only about Monty Python. So reflection on this beer. That's pretty good. I, I thought I was going to hate it based on the smell, but it's actually I love really it good. Yeah. My God. But I think you, honestly, I think you could burn this in a motor. It's so good. 10.5%. Yeah. No, it's good. Mm. Christmas leftovers. So Yeah. Liver invaders. <laughs> That's awesome. Good All right. Beer. So next uh, episode. Yeah, we'll go over the writing and the recording. And then we'll jump right into Children of the we Damned. We've got a lot to do. And also, special plug, we've got a, our, our good man. Jarvis Knight Demon. Right, Jarvis He's got to come back Demon. in. I think we'll pull him in on the tail end of this to give us a wrap-up perspective. Yeah. When he was on our podcast originally, he's been a, a you know a loyal supporter of the show for a long time. This is his favorite studio album. Yeah, he said and this so is his favorite. Gonna, yeah. yeah, I love that when we get a, a diehard uh, you know, Maiden fan and get them in on their favorite episode because you always get a different perspective. And yeah. remember we did that with X Factor. So we'll bring him in either next episode or the yeah, episode we'll get through the tracks and then we'll bring him in yeah awesome awesome so reflections on the beer real quick yeah good we just did a reflection eh, on the beer. good <laughs> second third reflection on the beer yeah, very good um yeah, yeah. no it was, it was good the parrot is dead <laughs> oh god i'm not gonna hear the end of it now talkingmaiden.com yeah uh, rate us on itunes if you haven't already until next time tell your friends tell your friends yeah up the irons and down the hops.